Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Short Tempered Podcast. We had a little bit of a break when uh, Abby and I were both back home um, from break, but um, I'm back at school. And uh, Abby, are you back yet? Or are you got yes, a little bit longer? Sir. No, I'm back at school. Um, moved into a new apartment, so that was that was a process, but that was pretty nice. Uh, we tried to do a live shooting in Orlando. Um, but we had some technical difficulties, uh, couldn't really, you know, the mic quality was terrible. So we decided not to upload that episode, but, um, looking forward to this one for sure. We haven't talked in a long time. I know we haven't, and there's been a ton of stuff going on in the sports, politics and music. So I say we hop right in. Let's do it. So the NFL 2022-2023 playoffs is fully underway. There are four teams left. We are at the conference championship round. If you look at um, our playoff predictions, you will see that as of right now, my bracket uh, remains perfect. But with that aside, uh, kind of walk me through these conference championship games, Abi, and tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we made an episode on uh you know predicting all of our uh you know predictions on the various wild card games max is somehow perfect and i'm nearly like over six on all the wide wild card games um i think you know that just shows that you know max's knowledge on the nfl is way more superior than mine and i'm wondering if i should even uh you know upload this episode in the first place i think maybe you should take the editing on that one and then and then uh you know maybe you can upload it but it's i don't done. Think, i don't think you're gonna do it so that's better for me saves the embarrassment um yeah so walk me through the two games i mean i guess we can start with the nfc conference championship we have the san francisco 49ers visiting the philadelphia eagles the one seed versus the two seed what do you kind of like in this matchup yeah, I think, I don't know, the two games were really interesting, right? Because a lot of people were riding on this um, Giants high after they beat the Vikings. And then the Eagles just blew them out. Um, and it, people were just calling Eagles frauds the entire season. And I guess that's still yet to be determined because this is like their first arguably real um, competition here. But I think what they did this weekend is they really proved that they're, you know, in it for the race. They're not a fraud team. They didn't just have an easy schedule. So the 49ers are definitely going to have a matchup against them. And I think these are going to be two fantastic, uh, you know, semifinal games to the Super Bowl. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to look forward to it. I really think that out of that matchup, the Eagles versus the Niners, I think it's going to be close. I'm personally pulling for the Eagles. I have a couple cousins from Philly. Um, so I'm going to be rooting for them. Uh, I, I believe in Hurts for sure. Uh, but it's 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 definitely going to be hard because like this 49ers defense is, is really good. Um, I don't know if their performance in the last game against Dallas was representative of that or maybe Dak Prescott just isn't the elite quarterback that everyone thought he was. But, um, you know, yeah, we'll see. What do you think? What do you think about about Dak's performance in that, in that game? I mean, look, Dak looked, quite bad but the 49ers defense is very good um so I think the larger issue for Dallas is they can't really make any big moves right they're committed to Dak with a ton of money so it's not like they have a lot of outs at the quarterback option to me it's kind of like hey we got a role with Prescott let's see how else we can build the roster to maybe make this team better but in terms of the championship matchup I, in my early prediction, I had San Francisco beating Philadelphia. But after the um, divisional round, I'm not so sure I love that pick. Um, Brock Purdy, after looking spectacular through something like 11 games, looked pretty much like a rookie against Dallas. And Dallas obviously has a very good defense, and Micah Parsons played phenomenal. But the Eagles also have a phenomenal defense. and. I think that some of the struggles we saw from Brock Purdy might potentially carry over to this game. And if not for some heroics off a George Kittle catch, 
you know, it might have been a very different game. Um, the Philadelphia Eagles look phenomenal. And I don't want to take away too much from that game because they did play the Giants, who I think have some major issues. But man, they looked phenomenal. I mean, ran the ball dominantly. Jalen Hurts was great through his progressions, you know, had a great arm. The defense played well. So to me, I and with home field advantage, I really like the Eagles coming out of this matchup. But really? man, it's it's gonna be a special game watching, you know, Jalen Hurts, who, you know, his coach compared him to Michael Jordan, which might be a little bit early, but watch him who's you know relatively unproven and has a lot of doubters play against this you know Mr. Irrelevant rookie and Brock Purdy so and I think the quarterback play is going to determine the game so it's going to be a really interesting NFC championship but I would have to pick the Eagles at this at this moment so is it because of Purdy that that's why you changing your decision ultimately or to me to me it's a quarterback play I think I think Hurts I think Purdy is a good player but he's just young and to me, I like Philadelphia's defense more than Dallas. And Dallas really did a number on the 49ers. I mean, the 49ers got lucky, really lucky in a couple spots. Got two, you know, picks off Prescott. Purdy threw a ball that should have been picked off. So it's just some of those things where they didn't look great. Philly looks so great that it kind of feels like this is a game for Philly to kind of take over. Yeah, I would say so. I would say that with caution, though. I think, you know, the Giants were definitely an overhyped team, in my opinion, um, going into this matchup just because they did beat, which could arguably be an even more overhyped team, which was the, um, you know, the Vikings. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a great matchup. I think it's going to be good. Do you think this game is going to be better or do you think the the AFC game is going to be better? You know, I I think both these games are going to be great, but I think that AFC game is going to be a little bit better just because of the question marks, right? Mahomes coming off a high ankle sprain in the 27-20 win over Jacksonville. Even hobbled, Mahomes looks spectacular. And so it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how well he can play, what the pain is like. And they're playing a Cincinnati team who manhandled the Buffalo Bills. I mean, absolutely dominated them. But Cincinnati also has some questions. I know the offensive line played really well against Buffalo, but I'm a little bit unsure of how they're going to fare against Kansas City. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a relatively low-scoring game compared to what we would have thought of before the playoffs. Really? I think one thing to note is that Tony Romo made a great analysis while he was doing the broadcasting for one of the games. Um, And he said that, after the Mahomes injury, he played so well because he was high off of that adrenaline for the rest of the game. The next day, though, with what was it, a high ankle sprain, I think, yeah. that's that's really hard to recover from. You know, some people are on crutches the next day. So although I do trust that Mahomes and he has played through, you know, various injuries very, very well in the past, um, you know, he did play really well that, that game. Um, will he really be able to like play to like the best level that he really can be and is that enough to really take over this Bengals team that looked great in the the, the treacherous snow uh in Buffalo that was that was a great game and I think you know it was just interesting to to see because um you know Buffalo was was probably slightly favored in that game um but the Bengals really dominated on all fronts. And it seemed like from the start, the Bills were behind. So do you think that was due to quarterback play again? Or was that really a good Bengals defense that really showed out that day? To me, that game was um, just about how dominant Joe Burrow looked over Josh Allen. And no doubt Josh Allen's a great quarterback, but Joe Burrow looked surgical, he went through his progressions fast. He always seemed to find the right guy. Whereas Josh Allen felt like he was pressing it. I mean, the Bengals scored a quick touchdown the opening drive, and it felt like Josh Allen was playing like he was down 20. He's forcing the ball downfield. He's not taking the easy checkdowns. He's extending plays when he doesn't have to. And so for me, it just said a lot about kind of the poise that Joe Burrow plays with. You know, he has the name like Joe Cool. And so I, I think. 
that aspect really carried over. But for me, it's interesting because I think both these conference championships are going to be about the pieces of the team that aren't as important going into the game. What I mean by that is Cincinnati and Kansas City have two of the best quarterbacks. To me, the game is not going to be about the quarterbacks. To me, the game is going to be about the rest of the roster. Who wins the line of scrimmage? Who's able to cover the receivers? Which running backs are able to get going? Whereas in the NFC, both the rosters are so good. But to me, the game is going to come down to who makes more plays, Brock Purdy or Jalen Hurts, which is fascinating because you love when it gets to the playoffs and it's just about who has a more complete team and who, when they haven't maybe played as well in the past, can step up and carry their team you know, over the final stretch. I think this Bengals defense, though, are they a lot better than this KC defense? It's interesting. Certainly they are. And I love their, you know, seven guys in the box. And I think they have some really nice players on the secondary. But I think they were maybe a little bit better than they actually are against Buffalo. To me, to me, Buffalo just got punched in the face and they couldn't really recover. Um, Kansas City's not going to be that. Not, not That won't happen to them. Even if they get down early, Mahomes is always going to be in it. He's always going to be able to make plays. And Kansas City has a much better running attack than Buffalo. That was one of the things I said. Buffalo is very one-dimensional. So it's easy for a defense to play when they're up. I don't think that'll be the case against Kansas City. And I think Kansas City's defense is much better than people actually think it is. But from a talent perspective, it really seems like this Bengals team is overall a better team. They have a better defense. They have a better running back. Um Everything except for the quarterback position, they seem like they have the upper hand. Even in the receiving core, you know, maybe except for Kelsey, you have outstanding receivers, um, three outstanding receivers on the Bengals offense. Um, And if you throw in Hurst in there, it's four. So I think, you know, all around, it seems like if Joe Burrow can play well, this game could turn into, you know, a Bengals game for sure where they're, you know, showing out on all fronts, it could be, you know, not as close of a game as a lot of people are expecting. Yeah, I mean, to me, it it comes down to the line of scrimmage. Can the Bengals protect Joe Burrow and can they establish a run game? Because Kansas City does have some phenomenal players on the defensive line. And then vice versa, can the, you know, Kansas City Chiefs give Patrick Mahomes time to operate in the pocket because he can't really run. So they're going to need to give him a pocket and let him work through his progressions against a very good uh, Bengals defensive line. So to me, it's all in the line of scrimmage and whoever wins that side, you know, whoever wins the line of scrimmage to me is going to win the game. So, you know, what this game, these games this past weekend really showed to me was, you know, a lot of it comes down to the quarterback play and that's kind of what the era we're in right now. Um, yesterday's game was really just like a battle between Burrow and Allen. Um, and to me, I don't know, I talked to a lot of friends about this. It seems like they would take Allen in a heartbeat over Burrow, but looking at their career, who would you take as a, as a quarterback? If you were building your own team, who's had the most impressive career and who's playing the best right now? Well, I mean, between those two, it's Burrow and it's not even close. And I mean, I'm such a Burrow fan. He's not as athletic. He doesn't have that power running ability. But to me, he's just a phenomenal talent. So, I mean, I'd like to push back on that a little bit. I think Josh Allen has put up way more numbers, way better numbers. I wouldn't say I'll roll back on that a little bit. Not way better numbers, but he's put up better numbers for sure. If you look at the at the box scores and his stats over the last five seasons, um, and, and this season in particular, his better, you know, passing stats, obviously better rushing stats. His offensive line is arguably worse this season, has been pressured on more attempts than the Bengals' offensive line have let Joe Burrow um, pressured. And although that has changed over the last couple of years, but if you're taking this, you know, you have this six foot four beast of a man who can have his outstanding running ability because uh, he's a mobile quarterback. Burrow's not a mobile quarterback. Um, so if you're building a team, honestly, I'm taking Josh Allen, despite, you know, maybe his 
turnover woes that he's been having lately. Well, the Bengals have not had a better offensive line. Last year, Joe Burrow was the most sacked quarterback in both the regular season and the playoffs. And again, this year he has a you know hugely injured line. Yes, the running ability of Allen is good, but to me, Burrow is by far the better passer, by far the better leader of that team. The the thing that's different to me is when I watch Josh Allen play, it looks like hectic. Right? It looks like he's trying to make magic happen, right? He's almost trying to recreate what Patrick Mahomes is. Joe Burrow doesn't try that. Joe Burrow knows not every play he's going to be able to run or do some magic, but he works through his progressions. He's always throwing the ball exactly where it needs to be. To me, it's almost Brady-esque in that way, where you don't watch the game and say, oh my God, Brady did this amazing play, oh my Lord. But when you actually go back and watch it, Every single play that needs to be made, Brady's there. Just like Burrow. Burrow's always making the right pass. He's always finding the correct guy. And when a play's not there, he's always getting rid of it. So to me, Burrow's more accomplished. He's more poised. He's a better leader. And I think most teams, after that game especially, would probably take Burrow over Allen. But, I mean, looking at... Historically, that's true that they've had a worse offensive line than the Bills. But looking at sacks as a stat, and I'm borrowing this from my roommate because we had this argument. I was on the side of Burrow, and I think he slightly convinced me. Is looking at stats, sacks as a stat, is not really fair to Josh Allen because he's a more mobile quarterback. Obviously, Joe Burrow is going to get more get sacked more because he's a non-mobile quarterback. And obviously, it's going to look like Josh Allen is making these mystical and crazy plays because he has to he has to run out of the pocket he has to scramble um, around the pocket a lot of the time and that's honestly because his offensive line is marginally worse this year than Joe Burrow's um, to bring up some numbers the Bills O-line has allowed 81 pressures to the Bengals 74 and the Bills O-line has a 29.2 percent pressure rate to the Bengals 28 percent so if you're looking at it his offensive line is you know marginally worse um, and maybe that's why he had he you know, and because he's a mobile quarterback, he doesn't get sacked as much. So um, I do see your point on, on, on the other fronts, but um, I think the fact that he adds like this mobileness to his game makes him like a dual threat quarterback that uh, is really scary for a lot of defenses. Look, he's he's no doubt to me a top five quarterback. Allen's probably third or fourth to me right now, but Burrow has had the better line until the injuries and the injuries have really plagued them the last two weeks of the regular season and the playoffs. And despite that Burrow dominated Allen in Allen's, you know, stadium to me, it's not really close. And if, if Burrow's able to make it to a Super Bowl and potentially win, we're talking about Joe Burrow going to two Super Bowls, winning one versus Allen never even getting to a Super Bowl. So to me, it's, to me, it's kind of crazy to say that that you you take Allen even at this stage of their career. Well, I mean, he was what was he one game away from the Super Bowl a couple of years ago? Yeah, I mean, he lost to uh, Kansas City. Yeah, and he got a rule change because of that. Yeah, I mean, they changed the overtime rules, right. but so, he still didn't get there. But I'm but to my my point is is that he was maybe. A couple seconds away. 13. From, yeah, 13 seconds exactly from a Super Bowl appearance. So are we really going to use that to discredit him? Does that really create this this narrative that Burrow is much better than Allen just because he's gotten to two? I think, yes, he's. I could possibly concede that he's better than Josh Allen, but you're making it seem like it's 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 a huge difference. I think you're inferring that. I, I said I thought Allen was a third or fourth best quarterback. Or I think Joe Burrow is the second best. And it might have been, Allen might have been 13 seconds away. But you know how far away Joe Burrow is from his first Super Bowl? About a negative one year because he was in the Super Bowl last year. So to me, it's not really not really a discussion even after Burrow just absolutely manhandled Allen. I think it's, uh you know, someone made the comparison that Joe Burrow is like Tom Brady and... Josh Allen is like Aaron Rodgers in the fact that, that during the regular season, Josh Allen puts up the best stats, looks the best, his team is doing better. But when it comes to the postseason, Joe Burrow knows how to win. 
So that is an interesting uh, comparison. I would say that it's probably going to play out in the next few years. And we're going to see this kind of career comparison between, you know, these great quarterbacks that are coming out, you know, Hurts potentially being one of them. Who would you put in your third spot if you, if if it's not Allen? I think it's probably Allen, and then I put Hurts fourth. Okay, but so so for this Kansas City Cincinnati game, who do you think wins for final prediction? Yeah, I mean, after thinking about it, I think the Bengals are gonna are gonna win. Um, I think that might be riding off the high a little bit too much, but this KC team is a. Sh- slight shell of itself compared to previous seasons, right? They've gotten rid of certain assets on their team, um, like you mentioned. So that could definitely play a factor into it. And at the same time, this Bengals defense, they really played good this last game. Um, And yes, it could have been because Buffalo was playing bad, but it seemed like they were making all the right plays. So if they can play that way against Patrick Mahomes, who's also injured, it seems like it's going to be a a Bengals victory. And, you know, in my opinion, probably meeting the Eagles. I think it's going to be very close. I do think Brock Purdy, um, I think he's playing good. When I look at him, I don't see anything glaringly wrong with how he's playing. It doesn't even seem like he's inexperienced. And I do, I, there was two moments in that game where I saw he was, you know, slightly inexperienced. One of them you spoke about. The other one was right before... The second quarter ended, I think. He threw away a pass that, um, you know, he, he got kind of scared. So that was, like, two plays where I was like, okay, like, I guess, like, this, me knowing that he's a rookie, I can see that. Um, but I think it's going to be a lot closer. I think it's going to be – I think that's going to be – honestly, I think that could be the closer game um, compared to, to the Bengals and, and KC. Yeah, I mean, certainly they're both going to be good games. I – a healthy Patrick Mahomes, I would say Kansas City, but with kind of unknown of how he's going to be, I think the Bengals will probably uh, win this one. But we're very excited. It's going to be a great uh, two games of football. But with that, the NBA trade trade deadline is approaching. I believe it's February 9th. And already there's been some action underway. Today, the Lakers... Um, acquired Rui Hachimura from the Wizards for Kendrick Nunn and I believe three second round picks, which is kind of crazy to believe. But I guess we'll kind of go through some teams and kind of think what they should do at the deadline. But let's start with the Lakers. How do you feel about this trade? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not the best trade they could have made. I'm glad they're making some trades because at the end of the day, it comes down to do you want to protect LeBron's legacy, which in my opinion is more important, or do you want to, you know, make sure that for the next 10 years, the Lakers organization isn't just losing all the time and they're not making the playoffs all the time. So because they basically sold their future uh, when they, you know, were acquiring people like Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, um, LeBron James, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, they gave up a lot of money and they gave up a lot of picks in, in doing so. So it's it's hard, but it's just really surprising to me that the Lakers are at this point where you have Thomas Bryant and Matt Ryan who are, you know, basically almost like they're playing a lot of minutes. I don't even, I cannot even believe those two names are on the Lakers and associated on LeBron's team. It feels like we're back on the Cavs when he was like first drafted and you have these bunch of scrubs on your team. So look, LeBron is playing great right now. He's playing fantastic. Um, I think he should be in the MVP conversation, frankly, but is this a good acquisition? It could have been a lot better. I'm glad they're doing it, but you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of mad at the Lakers organization right now. If you're going to sell even more of your future, at least do it and do it effectively. Why? Like they need a three-point shooter. They need a very effective three-point shooter. They need someone like Buddy Heald. They need anyone that could shoot the three at an effective clip that LeBron could just drive and dish it to. Because that's what he's best at. So I think it's uh, it's it's really interesting. And it, I don't know. I'm I'm worried for the Lakers. I'm worried for LeBron. I mean, look, the Lakers know they have LeBron for two more years and then he's gone. So to me, 
the question is simple. Do you th- that the Lakers have to ask themselves, the front office? Do you think any trade we can make gets our team a championship? Because currently they're the 12th seed. They're a game behind the Oklahoma City Thunder, who we thought were tanking for Wembenyama. So to me, this team is really bad. And to me, you either have to make the decision of, we're going all in. We're trading our two first-rounders. We'll get someone like Buddy Heald and Turner or maybe Bogdanovich from the Pistons, and we're just going all in. Or you just say, you know what? If LeBron and Anthony Davis can get healthy and do something in the playoffs, cool. But if not, we're going to protect our future. You can't kind of do this middle thing where you're trading all your second-rounders to get maybe good enough to get into the play-in game. Like To me, it's just weird in between that – it's not good for teams to do. You either need to be really good and contend or be really bad and get good draft picks. And with that kind of theme of being really good, being really bad, I kind of want to throw some teams out that are maybe in this kind of flux state of, are they contenders? Are they not? And kind of discuss whether they should make trades at the deadline, whether that being them acquiring players or them giving up players. Right. Sure. All right, so the first team I'm going to throw at you is the Chicago Bulls, who are currently the 10 seed in the East. They have some interesting choices. They just signed Zach Levine. So do they want to trade a player like Vucevic or Lonzo Ball or DeMar? Or do they even want to trade Zach Levine and kind of get some picks for the future? Or do they want to try to make a trade or two to see if they can climb up in the, the standings a bit? I think, you know, anything that they do right now, they should try to do it to win because, you know, they're sitting at this like, you know, 10 seed um, right now in the Eastern Conference. But the talent on that team is a lot better than I think what the record shows. They have very, very good people on that team. And it's always been a question to me why they haven't, you know, been even more successful. Maybe that's a personnel issue. I think it's probably something a little bit deeper than that. I don't know who you can really get and acquire to really help your team out. I think Vucevic is 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 a great player to have. He's a good big man to have. You have two arguably you know fringe stars on your hand with DeMar DeRozan and and Zach Levine. Um and and you have a good cast of of role players, a, a decent cast of role players. Maybe they need something on their on their bench. Um I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean to me, the Lonzo Ball injury, he's been injured for a while now, is a big deal because before his injury, when that team was full health with him, Alex Caruso, they were a top team in the East. And then those injuries kind of hit and they took a step back and then they lost to Milwaukee in the playoffs. But to me, this can still be a good team. And I think sometimes teams get a little impatient and make a move when they shouldn't. So I agree. I think if anything, they should stand pat or try to make a move to maybe acquire a player. But with that, let's go to the Western Conference, a really interesting team in the Utah Jazz. You know, they trade away Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell to kind of, you know, tank for Wimbenyama, but now they're sitting at the nine seed. What do you think they should do? Yeah, I mean, they. I think they have a lot of assets on their hands, right? They have a lot of picks. I think they could really trade and like become a good team. I think it's it's hard. I don't think this is their year to win, obviously. Um, but they've gotten into a spot that's very interesting and very rare in the NBA where they were trying to sell their future. They were trying to essentially rebuild. They didn't think they were going to do anywhere close to as, as good they're doing right now. They didn't think you know, um, marketing was going to do this well this, this season. So when you're in this position where you have like this all-star caliber player on your team, he's playing really well and you're in a position to, to make the playoffs. I think you could acquire assets, but do so not to win now, but to, you know, put yourself in a comfortable position to be in the playoffs for the next five years consistently. And I think that's kind of like the move that they need to make. Are there any, you know, speculations as to what they they might be doing? Yeah, I mean, again, they're in this really interesting middle ground where you kind of, as a front office, want them to do badly so they can get higher picks. But they also have some really interesting talent. To me, though, you tank. And that involves 
getting rid of basically every player you have except Lori Markadin and their rookie Walker Kessler, who's looked phenomenal at times. And I would just say, hey, let's trade everyone else. Maybe maybe you keep um, one or two players that you really like, but you say, hey, Markadin, we'll keep paying you. Do you want to sit on the bench for a little bit? Take the year off and try to see how bad you can get. Because right now they're in this middle ground where maybe they'll make the play-in. They probably won't even make the playoffs. Like, they're an okay team. But to me, you sit your guys, you trade Connolly, you trade um, Jordan Clarkson, get as many picks as you can. You already have all the assets from Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. So to me, you say, hey, can we just wrap this season up, see how low we can get, can we get a chance at Wembenyama maybe? Hopefully. If not, can we just get a super high pick and then start building out that team? Because right now they're in a bit of a weird ground where they have players like Mike Connolly and Jordan Clarkson who are win now guys, but then they have a ton of guys like Colin Sexton or Walker Kessler who are developed in two to three years. Maybe you can win. So to me, they've got to make a direction. And the issue is they can't really go up at all. So they might as well go down. Wait, why can they not go up and all? I don't understand why you can't sell a player like Mike Conley and get, you know, younger players that can help you build for the next 10 years. Because, like, also, like, why would Warrior Marketing just sit on the bench for a year? That makes no sense. Well, I mean, the Thunder have been doing that with Shea Gilgis-Alexander for, like, three years, it seems now. So, like, to me, it's not impossible. But to me, like, when I say go up, I mean contend this year. To me, they're not contenders this year, right? There's probably six or seven teams that are like clearly better in the West, not even regarding teams in the East. So to me, if you can't contend for a championship, then there's no reason to sit at the nine or 10 seed and like get bounced the first play-in game and now have a terrible draft pick. To me, trade your old guys, see if you can get maybe young developmental players or draft picks that in the future you can build with. But at least for this season, I think they need to trade away some of that talent. What you're describing is actually terrible for the league. Because what you're describing is this complete lack of parity, which we have a lot of parity in the league right now. And it's because of the opposite of what you're trying to say. You're saying that every team that's not contending for a championship should just bust right? That is exactly what teams should do. That's not, that's not what teams should do whatsoever because their primary motivation isn't just to win championships. Their primary motivation is ticket sales, right? And when your primary motivation is ticket sales and to make money, most money as possible, you don't need to necessarily win now. Instead, you need to create a culture of winningness throughout your organization because that's how you sustain winning over like generations. That's why there's organizations in this league that have won so many championships and there's organizations in this league that have won zero championships. And that's because of a culture of winningness. The Lakers have a culture of winningness. The Warriors have a culture of winningness. They've established a legacy in the in the in the league where they're going to continue to win every single year and maybe there'll be like a five-year stretch where like they won't do well but they had this they had a culture of winningness before and that's what's gonna that's that culture of winningness is what inspires players to want to come to that kind of team before because they had that legacy and to continue and bring that legacy back so I, i really like disagree that like teams are really trying to do that in the first place well first of all Players don't go to teams because of their winning culture. They go because of money or a chance to win a championship. I have a quick question. Do you think the Spurs have a culture of winning? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's not probably. They definitely have a culture of winning. And right now they're second in the West and they're tanking. They trade away DeJounte Murray. They're probably going to make a couple of other trades. I'm not saying that teams don't tank at all. Okay. I'm saying that... If you're just because you're not in the bottom or just because you're not at the top doesn't mean you necessarily have to tank, right? Like there's I'm not there's saying a that gray area. There certainly is. And teams like the Mavericks or the Clippers or the Suns, who I personally don't think are good enough to win championships, but they potentially have an outside shot. They shouldn't tank and they should go for a championship this year. But for teams like the Jazz, who have zero chance to win a championship, they're from a standpoint of winning basketball. If you want to make a whole argument about like ticket sales and what the front office should do, that's something else. But from a standpoint of winning, 
it only makes sense to either be the best or competing for a championship or the absolute worst team. If you're somewhere in the middle, that's what the Alerna Magic have done, right? They were somewhere in the middle. And so they got the eighth seed every year and got bounced every year, but they never actually got any better because they never got top-tier young talent. They never attracted any free agents. So for teams like the San Antonio Spurs or the Jazz or the Thunder even, their incentive should be to tank now, to try to acquire as much talent as possible and to build for the future. As you said, they can have five years of being bad. So for the next 10 to 20 years, they can be dominant. So I think there's there's a key difference in the Jazz and the Orlando Magic, right? They were both, you know, fringe eight, nine teams, um, meaning like fringe eight, nine team when, when you're describing the time of the Orlando Magic when you're describing and, and what the Jazz are now, right? The difference is that they have a player that they can build around. The Jazz have a player that they can build around. They have a star player. And when you have a star player, that is something that's pretty rare in this league. And I think that Laurie Market, in my opinion, has the potential to really, really have a great career. And I think that if you can build around him and you can bring on assets i don't think you know maybe to, this year is not the year but by selling your 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 you know completely selling your your future essentially or sorry selling like a lot of your like current players are you know establishing um this you know fringe eight nine status for you is is, is really harmful to like you know next year the year after and the year after that I think that maintaining a couple key players on that team, um, even if they're slightly older, is, is probably important because just because the Jazz don't have a chance to win it this year, who's to say that they don't have a chance to win it in three years? I think they do, but only if they acquire a young talent that isn't currently on their team, right? Like the reason they traded Donovan Mitchell and Royce O'Neal and Rudy Gobert was so they could be bad. The issue is, they just got players that were really good and they didn't realize they were going to be quite this good so early on. So now they're actually good. If you had asked the front office, like honestly, like gave them a serum that made them tell the truth, they would say they were trying to lose every single game with those offseason trades. They just happened to get really good talent and I think their coach is really good. So I think they should build, they, they were great that they got these players, but now they should flip them over and get even more rewards. They're plan before the season was to tank it should still still be their prerogative to tank even now so you think that they should get rid of colin sexton if i think they should mark three to four guys that they think are in five years championship caliber guys and sell everyone else and i think that's marketing um vanderbilt um walker kessler maybe colin sexton and then trade everyone else Maybe Colin Sexton. I would say definitely Colin Sexton. I think he's a bit ball dominant, and I don't love him as a passer, but he could potentially develop. Yeah, I think okay, because that's what you just said is the is not at all what you were saying earlier. What you were saying earlier was that you should keep Laurie and you should sell everyone else, and then you should bench Laurie. Look, you should. I still agree with the benching. You should be as bad as you should. You should swap your G League and NBA teams. You just say, hey, G League guys, go play every game, lose us every game. You should sit all your starters to try to get that one pick. That's what I think you should do. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I disagree. I think I think what what you're saying, like as a as a GM, if you were doing that as a GM, like yes, that's that's probably strategic. As a fan, though, I, I hate that because I love the parody that's happening in this league. Every game is very competitive and you have situations where the Orlando Magic are beating the the Pelicans. So I think that that really shows the parity that's in this league right now. And and I'm loving it. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, and I think the NBA is going to take some action against teams tanking. Um, but before they do, I think, you know, tank away. Makes sense. Um, moving on to politics, shifting gears a little bit more. Um have you heard about all of this George Santos catastrophe? Yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy, but give, give us some background info. Yeah, so I'm sure everyone or a lot of people know, but this guy elected to, to Congress um, through uh, the House um, from Nassau County. Uh, historically, 
you know, flips between uh, blue and and red. Um, they're they're pretty in the middle. In in twenty twenty two midterm elections, um, they they were on one side. In twenty twenty, they were on the other side. So you know, it wasn't like a, it's not a clear outright you know Republican district at all. Um, but they elected this guy George Santos, and it turns out he's lied about pretty much everything you can imagine. Um, he's lied about where he's worked. He said that he claimed that he worked at Goldman Sachs and the Citigroup. They were not able to verify that. He claimed he went to NYU and Baruch College. Um, that never happened. He said that he is, is openly gay, which I'm sure he is, uh, but did not want to reveal that he was married to a woman currently. Um, he is a descendant of, he said that he was descendants of, of Jewish people in Europe. Um, that is, is, is false according to, I guess, some gene, like, you know, gene testing that they did on his family or something like that. Um, he said that his mother was in the South Tower during 9-11 and was able to, uh, escape and survived. That, the immigration records, um, will say that she wasn't even in the country at the time. Um, other people are saying that he's even lying about his name. His roommate came out uh, in college and said that uh, he went by Anthony in college. He did not even go by by George. Um, and then the, a new report came out. It was that he was a drag dancer in, in Brazil. Did you hear about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and he's denying that. So this guy has basically uh, lied about everything. And um, there's, you know, a, a bunch of implications on this, obviously. Everyone wants him to resign. He's, you know, not not doing it at all. He he actually, um, they actually did a background text, a, te uh, test, a routine background test um, his campaign did on him. And they found out all of this information that was potentially falsified. And they begged him, they begged him, like, please don't run, please don't run. And he decided to run anyways. Um, and people on his campaign had to quit because of that, because, you know, they didn't want to get caught up with all of this. So it, it's really interesting what's going on, because we've never heard of something like this. Like, of course, me and you, we've probably embellished on our resumes a little bit, but never outright lied. Um, and we haven't seen anything like this to this extent, especially. So I think it's a... Uh, it's a pretty interesting thing that's going on right now. And I think it calls a lot of questions to the Republican party, especially. Yeah. My question is why are we surprised that a politician is lying? Like but lying about me, this much? Like, yes, this is a lot, but like, I don't know. Like, I feel like every politician is lied. Like to me, to me, the shocking thing isn't about the fact that he lied, but that the Republican Party doesn't seem to be taking the steps to remove him from office. The surprising thing is not that he lied. I mean, we had a president lie about getting head in the Oval Office. Like, this is like not surprising at all to me. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if every single politician came out tomorrow and was like, oh, I lied about X, Y, and Z. Like, and this just might stem from my distrust of like political figures, but like I assume I kind of just assume that politicians are lying about a lot of the stuff that they said. Like there's been a ton of stuff about like Biden lying about like where he went to college or like the grades he got at college. So like to me, it's not really that big of a deal. To me, the bigger deal is like how like okay politicians are with it, right? Like no one really seems to care that he's just lied about every part of his life it seems the republican party is just like okay yeah whatever as long as we have control like to me to me the larger issue is not that people are lying because that's just humanity the issue is no one's taking action against it but by you saying that you know this is it's surprising that the republican party isn't taking action against it but then also saying that politicians have continually lied about it and obviously have gotten away with it wouldn't that mean that this is something that's historically and unprecedentedly different than all the other times that politicians were lying i mean he lied about his name no i mean i think tons of politicians have lied the difference is whenever there's been a lie it seemed to have been people have taken action 
whether it's been something as big as like you know Nixon or Clinton or something much smaller, it always seems like we've taken action. The reason why I think it's important no one is taking action is when you look at it in the context of politics now, right? From President Trump's first election onward, it seems like there's been like a a moral degeneration in politics. And it now seems like that moral degeneration has gone so far as now when people lie, we don't even take action. Like we don't even care. Like as long as a political party is advantaged and as long as they still have control of that seat, they don't even care anymore. And to me, it's not the fact that he lied because people lie, politicians lie, everyone lies. To me, is that no one is taking action against the fact that he lied. That's yeah. what is big to me. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, you know, Andrew Yang put it really, really well in a recent tweet uh, he said that, quote, how does George Santos get elected and then stay in office? It's because we are voting for teams and tribal affiliations, not the human. That's so true. I think, you know, we've come to a point where we're just voting for parties at this point, And we don't know really anything about the candidate whatsoever. We don't really care. And that's that's pretty clear. These people, you know, voted for him. Not that I'm blaming the people, but you know, the um, news networks are not even doing enough to to verify this person's, you know, identity, who he is, what his background is. And instead, it's, um, you know, is what kind of Republican is he? Is he a MAGA Republican? Is he this kind of Republican? They just try to box you into these different classifications. And I think it's crazy that, um, you know, the Speaker of the House um McCarthy hasn't done anything yet um he is you know they're all going on this notion that oh you're innocent until proven guilty but you, he's been proven guilty just because it's not a criminal offense doesn't mean and I'm sure he's going to have some criminal offense that's going to pop up in the next few days is that it doesn't mean that um you know it's immoral so it's it's really sad to see, um, you know, you're right. I think there is like this, this degradation uh, in, in politics, you know, morally that, that, that we're seeing right now. Nassau County, the Nassau County Republican Party literally is asking him to stand down. If the local Nassau County Republicans can tell him to stand down and ask for him to stand down, how is the national people, you know, not wanting him to and it's it's obviously because that that majority becomes um slimmer that the republicans have in the house and obviously that threatens uh, a lot of their their voting stances and um voting standing um in the house yeah but i think it's also important to note that it's not all republicans right i don't want to blanket statements there's certainly some that have called for his job called for him to resign but you're 100 percent right that and andrew yang's tweet was spot on about it's so much about party lines now. It's no longer about the individual. It's no longer about who we trust, who we think can enact the best policy, who we trust to lead us. It's purely about which party can we get in office. And for the people in charge, it's about how can we retain power. So I think it definitely speaks to kind of the state we're in in politics. And and it's sad that it's it's come to this. Do you think it has anything to do with this rise of of MAGA Republicans that we're seeing in in Congress right now? Do you think that has to do with this, um, you know, moral degradation? I'm hesitant to say so. That's like the only reason, because it seems like people like even like Ted Cruz, they I mean, you know, he's kind of fallen in line with this like MAGA Republican kind of thing. But, uh, you know, this guy definitely has more no morals whatsoever. And he came before that time. To, to me, it's larger. To me, they're likely a symptom of the times we live in. I mean, whether it be something like the internet could be the cause. To me, it's kind of the way generations and society changes is people expect it to change a ton. And when you look at it in like a four to five year span, you see these big fluctuations in parties or viewpoints. But the overall trajectory of society is very slow bend. So to me, this is likely something that's been brewing for a while. 
whether that be the rise of the internet or some other factor or the level of education, but whatever it is, I think the rise of, you know, far right candidates in office is more of a symptom of a larger problem than the actual problem itself. Yeah. And I think it's, we're seeing this extremism, whether you like it or not, right? Like, I think there's a lot of um, policies that I agree with AOC on, for sure. But on both sides, we're I think it's an undeniable fact, we're seeing unprecedented um, swings on the political spectrum. We're seeing people on very, very far right in, in office, uh, in Congress, and we're seeing people relatively far left uh, compared to historically what we've seen. So, you know, I think that's, there's there's positives and there's negatives to it i mean obviously when you have some you know argue like people on the right would say that the people that are on the far right are pushing the needle in in in, in towards an america that they really want to see the same thing on the left they're pushing a needle aoc and and the whole squad they're pushing towards a, a vision of america that a lot of people on the you know, on the left, a lot of younger people want to really see. So, you know, I, I do think it is really interesting. I think, you know, it's uh, it's a combination of events that's really coming together. And, you know, right now, these last few years have really been the, the spotlight to that. Yeah, I mean, it's the world has just become so divisive and so much animosity. Like, I feel like if everyone just like took 10 seconds and was like, just like did some deep breathing exercises and was like, oh, not everyone's like my arch enemy. Like if I'm a Republican, the Democrats aren't like trying to kill me. Like they have other stuff to worry about, like the playoffs or stuff like that. Like people would probably just like chill out a little bit. Like to me, it's just like kind of crazy, like how like strung out people are over this. Like it's probably going to work itself not out if not, well, then we're all screwed and we'll move on. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's a good way to put it. I think people are really high strung for sure. I think it's on both sides too. It's like with the left, there's like this rise of like of, of wokeism and, and whether you agree with it or not, um, it's definitely, I've definitely seen some instances where it's worked out well. Like, of course, this person needs to get canceled. And then there's other instances where, you know, people on Twitter are going crazy after someone who like, probably didn't say anything that was like that bad or like they meant something else but you're not giving them the chance to actually say what they mean or what they mean is a lot more nuanced than what you think and instead of having a conversation um it's it's a uh, you know a shouting match it seems like almost and, and very very tentious but I, I would also like to bring up um you know on this point of, of MAGA Republicans we've seen a lot of them recently and a lot of them influencing very important things. Um, so, so one thing um, was the whole McCarthy, um, you know, speaker of the house elections. Um, a lot of them were withholding because they thought he was too moderate. And therefore, after I think it was 11 tries, um, they had to make a lot of concessions um, with, with the, the MAGA Republicans, um, like the establishment, uh, you know, RNC, I mean, and Kevin McCarthy, one of them was definitely related to, to the debt ceiling. And this 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 looming debt ceiling is, you know, Janet Yellen, the um, the Treasury secretary, is expecting us to possibly, you know, if we don't take drastic measures to default um, by the end of June. So, you know, a little bit of of. Uh, have you have you really heard of the the debt ceiling or or what it's about? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been, you know, caught up too much on the specifics. But my overall attitude is, does this matter? Like, yes, it matters, obviously. But I doubt the U.S. is going to default. You know, we'll figure something out. Whether that's raising taxes, the main issue for me is like, are we going to start cutting social programs? And that's likely going to be in the form of like social security or maybe something else. And and that's where like it starts to get pretty problematic and have, you know, significant impacts on people. No, I think it has, you know, those are the, that's the worry. Uh, and that's, that's actually a reality. That's not like a far-fetched dream that's, that's happening. Um, a lot of Republicans. So, so a little bit of background first, the debt ceiling is essentially, um, what 
the maximum amount of debt that we're allowed to borrow in order to cover our previous debts. That's essentially what it what it is, uh, and to finance our, our our previous debts. So it's it's different than like a government shutdown with like federal spending. It's more like uh, it's more of like a, like a financing thing on our previous previous debts. And if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then we will default on our debts. And it's become a more of like a political football in in, in the last uh, uh you know couple of decades where Republicans don't want to raise the debt ceiling. Democrats do want to raise the debt ceiling. And it's became become this tool in politics where a lot of people are able to get leverage out of those certain situations. And we saw a lot of that happening um, with, with the Speaker of the House election, where the MAGA Republicans kind of used that and wanted, you know, wanted to get that. And, and McCarthy, you know, he gave in and he he kind of used something to that that kind of vision um to to, to get the speakership so and that one real quick cuz that's crazy to me like part of my disdain of politics and politicians is this like passing around of votes or like you know bartering if you do this I'll do this like that shouldn't be how it's done you should vote in which your constituents are best benefited not because you can make some deal to get more power. Like that's part of the reasons that I hate politics because it seems so self-motivated, self-driven, and it's not actually caring about the people that are being affected. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, like like we were talking about before, it's all culminating right now where it's finally it's showing in the spotlight. Um but, you know, these extraordinary measures are 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 going to have to be, you know, far-fetched. It's what's what's really uh, what's really driving Republicans to want this is, is they want to make cuts to so Social Security and to, and to Medicare, which are, are universally beneficial programs to 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 everyone. Right. Everyone can can obtain that um, if they want to. And the reasoning as to why they want to, um, you know, make these cuts to Social Security isn't actually, you know, that bad until you really dig into the details of it. So Social Security is obviously like a program that is pretty, pretty terrible, particularly because of, um, you know, the retiring population right now is too much for the working population. And it's it's a burden at this point because the baby boomers are starting to retire. They're the largest uh, population in, in, in U.S. history, uh, generation U.S. history. And you know the workforce can't really handle that for um for for the social security and it creates this thing called the social security black hole so people are wanting to make long term changes to social security but the issue is that the republicans um are proposing far fetched cuts in order to close that black hole but what that's doing is that it's hurting um you know the very low income um people the most. Um, and, and if you look at, you know, if, if you do some digging into the official RNC documents, um, they, they want to make these cuts are more targeted on um, higher income individuals, actually, and reducing benefits for above average earners. But other things that they really want to do is they want to raise the, the retirement age. They want to, you know, make these other, you know, cuts to Social Security that um, will primarily hurt the most low income people. Um, you know, if there's one figure done that if the um, RNC were to, you know, do and have full autonomy and, you know, be able to make the cuts that they really want to do, it would hurt and it would reduce the benefits of low and very low income earners um, more than 98%. And it would cut their benefits by that much. And for the maximum earners, it would only cut it for 30 by 34%. So what's what's happening right now is that it's social security, people that are the most low income are are obviously the most dependent on social security. So any cuts made to social security are adversely going to affect them the most. So um it's 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 really travesty if that if that happens and at this point i'm not counting out anything so it, i think it is you know i don't think the treasury or the uh, yeah the treasury will you know let that happen i think janet yellen is 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 going to do as much as he can to pr- prov- uh, prevent that debt ceiling but like you said it's going to create the situation where there's going to be concessions on both sides that 
it's going to like have to happen. And, um, you know, overall, the American people are going to get hurt regardless. Yeah, I mean, the Social Security is failing. And it seems like an inevitability at this point that there's going to be a increase in the retirement age or significant cuts. Because the issue is just cutting the benefits that, you know, people above a certain wealth get is you don't save enough money. So you just need to keep doing more cuts and more cuts. And it's just a imperfection in humanity that politicians benefit from, you know, backloading the issues, right? No, no politician benefits from hurting their current base. So then in the future, we're better off, right? So politicians always want to, you know, create the best economy, create the most amount of growth, and they'll just backlog all the issues. And at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper. And, you know, we can keep slowly increasing the age or cutting benefits. At some point, we're going to have to pay the piper, but no politician wants to do it. So it's kind of, when is it going to happen? Someone's getting screwed. You just kind of hope that whoever it is, they're able to make it through that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like you said, it's it's probably not going to happen. We're going to avoid, you know, that kind of situation. But what it turns into is, is like I said, like a political football where McCarthy is going to use this to reduce federal spending um, in order to balance the budget according to um, what Republicans view is, is, is best for, for the country. Whereas, you know, in, in debate, we, we kind of knew that, you know, going through unlimited spending uh, without an excess isn't that bad. Um, and, you know, being able to preserve some of these uh, benefits like Social Security, Medicare, especially the universal benefits is, is definitely more important. But yeah. that's that's a, a long and lengthy discussion for, for another time. Yeah, definitely. Um, have we, we changed the pace to a bit of a lighter, more uh, enjoyable conversation about music? Um, 2022 just wrapped up and... We talked about our um, Spotify raps, um, but we kind of want to go over some of the best albums that we loved in 2022 and that even though it's 2023, we would still recommend you go um, check out. So, Abhi, do you maybe have a couple you want to throw out? Yeah. Um, you know, my number one. And I didn't think it was going to be because it, it came out a little bit towards the end of the year. But, uh, you know, the, this Metro Boomin album, I loved it. I loved it. After first listen, I didn't think it was the greatest. Um, but after you listen to the whole project, you know, once or twice, you get to realize that it's just like it has the same theme that it's going off of. And each individual song is, is so good. He's he's a great producer. So no matter who he puts on the project, even if they have a bad verse or anything like that, it's going to sound good. Um, and, you know, I, I loved it. I think it just um, there's different flavors in each in each song. Um, but it really, the whole album was brought together very, very well. That, that Homelander sample in that first song is, uh, that gets you going for sure. For sure. It's it's an experience. Yeah, definitely. My my number one album was from one of the legends, Nas. Um, I, mine uh, was Magic. It wasn't really an album. It was more of an EP, but um, phenomenal some of my most listened to songs are from that. Um, go check it out. Love it. Nothing Wait, else to say. What is it called again? Um, well, actually, Matt, now that I think about it, Magic was 21. So King's Disease 3. Okay. By Nas. I mean, any Nas album is a classic. I mean, and I think an argument for another day, but you can say he's he's the GOAT, but... We'll leave we'll leave that discussion for wow. Abi 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 ain't know Abi ain't know the the old the classics you know the wow. classics. Wow. Um, okay. What else? What's your What's your number two? Well, my number two was the Forever Story by JID. Mm, um, that was a good album. That's one that I feel like kind of its fire was short lived, but when I go back and listen to it. Man, some of those songs are phenomenal. Great production, great vocals, great lyrics, and and one of my favorite last year. 
Yeah, no, I think that was a great album. I think it was very like critically acclaimed. Um, and I think a lot of people were like, this is 100% going to be the album of the year. I think it's not, for me at least, it's not something that I would listen to like every day. Um, I think like, you know, J.I.D. is just, it's more of something like if I go to the the gym maybe or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely up there. I think, you know, critically, if you're analyzing, if you're analyzing it, um, if you're looking at like an objective best album of the year, I think it's definitely like, um, you know, top three, if not, if not number one. Um, but I think other than that, I would say the Pusha T album, I loved it. I'm a huge Pusha T fan. Um, and I think it didn't get as much appreciation as I thought. But when you really look at like what the critics, the so-called critics are saying, it's it's pretty high up there. So so I really like it. I don't know. Do you listen to Pusha T? I don't. And I haven't listened to the album, but I, I'll, I'll give it I'll give it a shot. And I think outside of the rap universe, I love the Harry Styles album. Um, that was that was great. And Max is rolling his eyes right now because he's a hardcore hip hop only kind of guy. Yeah, uh, no Harry anyway, Styles over here. I, I I really liked it. I didn't think I would, and I you know definitely made fun of whoever listened to Harry Styles and was a huge Harry Styles fan. Um, a couple of I years still do. ago. Um, but I listened to it, and I'm like this is crazy. Like, this is so good. And when you really look at it, it's like these pop stars, even though we're in this like world where like most of our friends listen to like, like rap and like, that's kind of like we're in college. Like that's, what's like popular. They like, I've been to rap concerts and I've been to, um, you know, you know, like these more pop concerts and these pop concerts are way bigger way more expensive and these artists are like the ones controlling music it's not even though like rap has a demanding culture um the harry styles tickets for the concerts i couldn't like afford that like that's way too expensive um and the the venue is absolutely massive um even like compared to the weekend who like you would think is like like huge harry styles was like absolutely selling out stadium after stadium he came to new york for like like some like crazy amount of shows in a row. Like I don't even want to say 14 shows or something. Yeah. It was like 14 or 15 shows in a row, which is like, like he's pulling people from like the, like the, the whole tri state. Um, and more. Was, oh, and more. I'm, people, I'm sure people flew in for that. So it just really shows you like the, the young, like middle school, high school girl has like the most like, influence on the music industry sometimes yeah no and, and one more album i'll throw out that from a bit of a smaller artist is god don't make mistakes by conway the machine mm-hmm. um he's an artist that i was introduced to maybe two years ago and i loved his past two albums and i love this album and it's definitely a more of an under the radar one that i would definitely recommend he's on the griselda label yeah. right yeah, I think you know that label is is uh for sure like a lot of people that are really into the rap game respect that label and everyone that's on it. So um yeah, I definitely want to give that more of a listen. But uh yeah, thanks for you know spending your, your Tuesday with us and uh make sure to follow the short tempered um Instagram in the in the bio of Spotify and the Twitter.